Welcome to Deeper, a podcast by Wollongong Baptist Church. Join us as we take the plunge and dive deeper into God's Word, the Bible. Here, we'll unpack and examine further the Bible talks presented on Sundays across our three English-speaking services. Today, we'll be thinking through more from our latest installment in our series in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, as together we study chapters 40 through to 66. So, let's get right into it and dive deeper. everybody and welcome back to a brand new season of Deeper. It is so great to have you tuning in with us. My name is Grace Jones and joining me this morning is Pastor Rod Bailey. Hi Rod. Good to be back for a new season. Yeah, I'm excited to be looking into the book of Isaiah. Uh, As I mentioned on Sunday, I am a little bit overwhelmed by this text. There's a lot going on, a lot to wrap our heads around. Um, But I think it's really great that we have this opportunity now to dive a little bit deeper into the text. So thanks Mm. for your time this morning. No problem. Um, Before we get into that, can you just give us a brief recap of what you talked about on Sunday? Yeah, sure. Um, So my big question was, how does God comfort his people? This section starts with the repeat of the word comfort, 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 my people Israel. Um, And so the question is, well, how does God comfort his people? What will be said in this section from verses 1 to 11 in chapter 40? And so I had four points that answer that question. Um, Firstly, uh, God doesn't disown them, but forgives them. So um, secondly, he... uh, Uh, assures them um, of their rescue um, or rather he announces their rescue and then he assures them of uh, his faithfulness and then finally he declares his power and gentleness Um, so these are all aspects of God's character or promises or declarations which can bring comfort to his people Hmm. which uh, is a timely message I suppose with this year in particular it's great encouragement to hear of God's comfort and his presence Hmm. with his people Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, But before we go there, I thought it might be useful for us. Uh, Some of us may still be trying to wrap our heads around the historical background going on here Mm -hmm. in this section of Isaiah. Mm. Um, In your talk, you told us that this is the lowest point for Israel. Um, Can you remind us again of what has happened and why Israel is in such a low point at this part of their history? Yeah, we'll see. We'll go a quick uh, recap over the Old Testament in terms of the nation of Israel. They're sort of formed as they come out of Egypt in the Exodus. Moses gathers them at Sinai. They receive the law. That's when the nation, as Jacob's 12 sons, first come together and are sort of viewed as Israel. Yeah. Um, and, and from then, they obviously go into the Promised Land with Joshua, um, and they conquer, and the things reach a height with King David, the second king, and then his son, King Solomon. But after that, uh, things go pear-shaped. So um, the kingdom splits into north and south, and there's this downward spiral after Solomon, partly on the back of Solomon's sin really gets repeated. Solomon uh, becomes idolatrous in the second part of his life, mm. mainly because he has these wives who are foreign, who have other gods, and he starts engaging with their religious practices. And then that gets uh, replicated, especially in the northern kingdom. Jeroboam and everyone that follows him um, are really idolatrous. And that eventually leads to God judging and really destroying the northern kingdom through the Assyrians. That happens in 721 BC. And then all you have left is the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, which just gets referred to as Judah. So the whole northern kingdom wiped out. Wiped out. The Assyrian policy was um, 
you mix up the people that you um, conquer. And so you they took some back to Assyria. They brought other peoples from elsewhere. They mixed them all in. So that's how we get the Samaritans. They were half Jews at best after that. You had Jewish people intermingled, many of them just taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so real loss of any continuity for the Northern Kingdom, basically yeah. gone. Um, south, you've got the remnant um, that's left in Judah uh, with the capital city of Jerusalem, which was where the temple was, the central place of um, you know God's presence with his people um, but it would be 150 years after the Assyrians had destroyed the south that the uh, the north rather that the Babylonians would then come and destroy the south and right. things had been going better in the south but they'd had a series of kings where you'd have one good king and then a bad one so mm-hmm. the good one would reform things and bring people back to worshiping God bad one would then go into idols as well and so there was was a battle with idolatry in the southern kingdom also which eventually god judges them for and his instrument of judgment this time is the babylonians um they first they the new superpower are they just random they're the new superpower so they defeat the assyrian empire they take over and um so they really dominate the whole um arabia uh, area Mm -hmm. and um they become it. And so when they're mopping up the Assyrian Empire, they also um, take over Judah as a result, uh, which was sort of under the Assyrian Empire and then a bit under Egypt. Um, but Egypt has waned in its power as well. So Egypt was probably the power before Assyria, then Assyria, mm-hmm. then Babylon. So Babylon picks up Judah um, from sort of 605 BC um, and sits a puppet king. Their approach was different to the Assyrians. They would leave the people in place. They just wanted money. So you can stay there and we won't destroy you if you pay us heavy taxes. And um, the first um, king did that for about eight years and then he got sick of that and rebelled. Right. Okay. Um, and as soon as they rebelled, then the Babylonian process was, well, we'll come and remind you that you need to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. And if this keeps going on too long, we will destroy you. And yeah. that's eventually happened. So twice they rebel. Uh, Jehoiakim, then Zedekiah rebel, don't pay the taxes. Babylonians come back after the second time. That's it. And so in 587, 586 BC, um, basically Jerusalem's erased, the temple is destroyed, and that was unthinkable. Mm. Um, So in those first two um, efforts in 605 and 597, groups of people were taken back to Babylon, but the final destruction and removal of just about everyone who was left um, means that uh, the nation ends up in Babylon, um, taking from the first group that went for about 70 years. Um, and why is the destruction of the temple such a big deal? Why is that so unthinkable? Yeah, it's just a building. Yes, it's just a building, <laughs> but it was um, yeah, it was representative. Right. Um, as Solomon said in his prayer that um, dedicated the temple, God can't be housed in a building. So it was only ever representative of God's presence. It's not like we've contained God and stuck him in this building we've put together. Um, but it was representative of God being with his people. Mm. And so if the temple was destroyed, there was a sense in which uh, God was no longer present mm. or that he wouldn't allow that to happen unless he had turned in judgment on them and had left anyway, mm. which is really what happens with the Babylonians. So they've had various prophets sent to them, um, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, to call the people back um, to repentance and faith but it hasn't happened and so god eventually allows that judgment to happen through Mm -hmm. the babylonians and so yeah it's a sad day and the 
um, I guess the Jews in the south of Judah, they believed that it wouldn't happen, that the north might be destroyed, and they were idolatrous, uh, um, but not in the south, because they were better, <laughs> and, and besides, they had the temple, and God wouldn't allow this. And that became reinforced by the end of the Assyrian Empire, because Sennacherib came and almost destroyed the south as well. He destroyed a lot of the towns, got right up to the walls of Jerusalem, made lots of threats, and God turned him away um, through various other events that were happening back home. And so he never destroys Jerusalem. But that became a belief then in Judah that, see, we're untouchable here in Jerusalem. God Uh won't allow it to be destroyed because he's present here with his temple, and so we're safe. Um, But that was a false security. Okay, so it's a massive thing that's going on for them. And so their experience... And the actual environment is telling them, God has abandoned us. God is not here. And so when we hear these words of comfort, comfort my people, I'm present with you. I won't abandon you in chapter 40. That's a really profound, special Mm. thing for them to hear. It's monumental, yeah, yeah, because at this point, um, the assumption there's this time gap between Isaiah 39 and chapter 40. Mm -hmm. And so they've now been in... Um, Babylon for 60 plus years Um, the time of captivity is coming to an end and God's promising there'll be a new day they'll return to the land there's hope and so that was a huge statement after Mm -hmm. that because they thought you know things were hopeless they were in despair in Babylon there was never going to be a return to the promised land Mm. well thanks for that it's always good coming to Rod for a history lesson he knows his stuff Um, let's think a little bit more now about our actual uh, passage and some of its implications. Um, You talked on Sunday about how Israel's situation um, came as a direct result of their sin, that God was disciplining his people by using foreign powers, in this case Babylon, as you just said, um, to send them into exile. Uh, 2020 has been a big year, a turbulent year. Should we be interpreting all these current events as God's judgment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think the first thing we've got to do with such a question is get our categories right. Um, so uh, God's people, um, certainly Christians today, can't be condemned. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when Christians suffer, um, it can be God disciplining them. Hebrews 12, uh, what child uh, is not disciplined by his father. And so God can discipline believers But it's never out of a a judgment to condemn because our condemnation has been removed through faith in Jesus. So it's never a risk of us not uh, being his people, of him rejecting us altogether. Uh, We have to be clear with the Israelites, though. It was tricky. Again, they were God's people. Uh, Ultimately, he was going to maintain a remnant and a relationship. It's just that not everyone that lived in the land of Israel was necessarily a follower Mm -hmm. of God. Uh, That was the intention, but many of them turned away to idols, as we were saying. So uh, in that case, there was a sense of, well, God was always going to produce a remnant of people that would trust him, and they would never be condemned. Uh, In their case, it was discipline. And so... We, we can talk about, as I did in the sermon, Babylon being a disciplinarian measure of God to bring his people back to a rightful trust in himself mm-hmm. and not being in idols. So we've got to be careful then with those categories in mind. Uh, condemnation of unbelievers who have rejected God outright versus discipline of his own people Mm. to strengthen their faith and keep them on track Mm -hmm. um, are two different things. So when we look at the mess in our world today and we say, well, is God judging um, 
Well, yes, um, every action can be seen potentially. Uh, we don't know the details. We're not always given a prophecy like we have in the Bible to be sure about events. So we need to be cautious about saying, well, this has happened because of that. You know, like, um, I know God is judging Australia because this has happened this week. Mm -hmm. um, we need to be careful with that yeah. um, because we haven't had a direct word from God, firstly. Right. But secondly, we need to differentiate between Christians living in a country and those who have rejected God. So God's judgment and final condemnation might um, seem to be falling on a person or a nation because of their rejection of him, although that will only be finalized on the day of judgment. Um, but if it's a Christian that's experiencing great suffering or persecution or, or um, yeah, just hardship, then that may be an act of discipline of God because of sin and bringing them back to the right ways. It may be just because they live in a fallen world and these things are happening. So we just need to be careful in our language, I guess I'm saying, about yeah. is this God's judgment uh, this week or this day with these events? Um, so having given those caveats or clarifiers, how do we think about um, you know, what's occurring in 2020, um, COVID-19 and ravaging in our world um, and lots of disruption um, you know some will um, jump to well this is clearly um, the end times and these are you know signals that uh, the end is nigh mm -hmm. well that's possibly true um, again we don't know the ultimate timing there's every generation of Christians have often thought their generation was the final generation mm -hmm. uh, if you lived um, you know 1914 to 18 during World War one uh, you know lots of Christians said well this is it this is the end uh, it was so devastating and then 20 years later, World War II started, and mm -hmm. this must be the end of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, the end is nigh. And then with the Cold War and the nuclear threat of Russia versus America, you know, somebody's just got to press a button and the end is nigh. Mm -hmm. uh, this must be it. So, um, I told you guys he was a history buff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, people. <laughs> but um, yeah, like, so this is the thing. Um, each generation can say that. Now, we may be the last generation, but, it, uh, you know, and these could be all signs of the end. Um, but God may yet drown us with another 2,000 years of history, and there may yeah. be a whole lot of COVID-19s and other struggles that happen in generations to come. Mm -hmm. We don't know, um, because so many of the statements in Luke 21, Matthew 24, these uh, end times chapters, um, Mark 13 in the New Testament, um, there's lots of things about wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, you know, lots of disasters. Um, but in one sense, uh, that list can be ticked off in nearly every generation. Yeah. So we, we just need to allow that little bit of caution, yeah. saying, well, it's definitely this or this week or this year. Um, but yes, we do know ultimately that every day is one day nearer Jesus' return. Mm -hmm. And we could be the final generation in which these things are fulfilled. <laughs> Um, but um, I think the, the key thing about that is not to spend endless hours trying to map out um, particular events in Revelation or in um, those chapters yeah. I mentioned in the Gospels and work out where we're up to. It's really living in light of the Day of Judgment. And so what it should spur us to do as Christians is to be growing our relationship with the Lord Jesus um, and to be ready in readiness, as Jesus would say in many of his parables, mm. um, for the day of his return. So don't get caught up on dates and numbers, yeah. but be concerned about your walk with the Lord and the walk with the Lord of those around you and be sharing the gospel. Mm. Wise words. Thank you. Uh, what we see in this passage in Isaiah chapter 40, 
that God is a God of judgment, but also one of comfort. He is sovereign and powerful, as well as the shepherd who gently leads his flock. He has a ruling arm, as you said, and a gathering arm. Uh, Why is it so important that we include both of these kind of diverse aspects of God's character when we're trying to talk about him and understand him? What danger is there if we focus on one side of his character and neglect the other? Yeah, it's been a battle, I guess, for Christians the last 2,000 years at some level in that, um, you know, people will say, um, yeah, God is love. Um, 1 John, um, you know, has that statement. And so that's the ultimate essence of God. And and then that sometimes is used to say, so if you say uh, God is wrathful or God is holy or God will judge, then that somehow that contradicts his love and um, we can't have both those, you know, be some split personality. But the Bible is insistent, um, both in the Old Testament and in the New, that these things must be held together. Yeah. They're not contradictions. So, in fact, the argument of the New Testament uh, really clearly is that you cannot understand God's love unless you understand his holiness. Mm. We understand his love. Uh, God's love is demonstrated in this by the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus, um, that when we were sinners, yet Christ died for us. You know, Romans 5.8, passages like that. Um, there's no way of making sense of God's love if the ultimate expression of his love is to send his son to die, mm. unless we've understood his holiness yeah. and therefore his um, determination to judge sin mm. and that that sin must be dealt with, paid for. And so uh, those two things must be held together. So at the cross, we see, you know, we often sing it in songs. This is where God's wrath and mercy meet. Um, that is, we see God's holiness where he must punish sin justly as a righteous God. And yet he expresses his love in that he allows that payment to fall on himself in the person of his son, Um, and so offer forgiveness to people that are undeserving of it. Um, So you cannot understand God's love without his holiness and vice versa. And so we need to keep all the characteristics of God that are expressed in the Bible intentional, held together. That's Mm. the full picture. Mm. Um, Well, I guess related to this, I guess I'm wondering how does this passage show us that the God of the Bible is consistent in his character? Um, Mm. Sometimes you hear... um, particularly non-Christians, I suppose, accusing the God of the Bible as being really inconsistent. Mm -hmm. Um, The Old Testament God, he's wrathful, he's Mm -hmm. full of vengeance. And then suddenly the New Testament God, he's loving, he's carrying lambs. Mm -hmm. It's all very soft and warm and cuddly. Yes. Uh, How does this pass, what does this passage, I guess, say to that accusation of the inconsistency of God's character? Yeah, it's just untrue. Um, We see God's graciousness and love throughout the Old Testament in so many ways that he would rescue Israel from Egypt, that he would say you know you i didn't choose you because you're an important people or you're the greatest or whatever in, in fact you're the least um like so god's love is expressed in his care and concern in so many ways and in this very passage in isaiah 40 verses 10 and 11 are a classic example verse 10 talking about god's power his mighty arm to rule um seems to talk a lot about um uh, that aspect that people view the old testament as being dominated by And yet verse 11 is talking about him being the shepherd who gathers his flock and gathers his lambs in his arms and looks after those that have young. It's a perfect, gentle picture, which is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus in John 10 and the good shepherd. So um, God's character, um, both his love and gentleness and his power and his holiness, um, his need to judge sin, uh, they're present both Old and New Testament. There's no 
um, difference between the two in that way. And it's simply because I think um, there are passages uh, where, you know, under Joshua, particularly as they go into the promised land, that, um, you know, people um, dying as the promised land is taken seems somehow harsh that God um, would allow this. Yeah. And it's, you know, we don't see this in the New Testament. Um but that's all just part of the plan of redemption or God's working, unfolding plan right. through that nation um, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, his character shifting. Right. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Um, well, a major emphasis in your talk was about how God comforts his pa- His people, how he's with them, how he has not abandoned them. Mm. Uh, you talked about how as Christians we have the Holy Spirit living in us, that God is with us. Um but I guess my question is, what does God's presence and comfort really look like for us now uh, in concrete, kind of tangible terms? Yeah, I think um, we need to think about the role of the Spirit and um, yeah, how that works for us today uh, because it is a key uh, thing for us to understand in terms of God's presence with us if he is indwelling us. If um, Jesus could say to his disciples in John 13, um, and in chapters 14 to 16, look, I'm, I'm going to go away soon. I'm going to the cross and then returning to my Father in heaven. But don't worry, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You're not left alone. I'll always be present with you. I'll send the counselor to be with you, uh, referring to the Spirit. Then this is a crucial thing for us to understand, that you can never have a sense of abandonment as a believer if you understand that you've been given the Holy Spirit. And so God indwells you. God's always with you because he's present in you. Um, that's a big idea to get our heads around and we could spend a lifetime (laughs) grasping more of the work of the Spirit in our life. Um, But the reason this is comforting um, is brought out in a number of places in the Bible. and One of them is Romans 8 uh, because in Romans, in that chapter in particular, um, Paul's speaking to those that are, um, you know, about suffering and the difficulties. um, And he says, you know, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Uh, not only that so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to some chip, uh, the redemption of our bodies. Um, and so what he's referring to there is um, having the Holy Spirit actually anticipates um, heaven, you know, and our eternal life. It's a uh, down payment, as Paul would say elsewhere in Ephesians 1, 13, 14, that it's the um, down payment that guarantees the inheritance um, that is eternal life with God. If our goal is ultimately to be with God, to be present with him, to have this sense of nearness with him always, then while we wait for that moment when we've finally got that in heaven, how do we sense God's presence and um, assured of his help now? Well, it's through the work of the Spirit in us um, that anticipates that great day. And so... Well, what does that look like from day to day? Well, you know, we only pray because of the Spirit's help. You know, the Spirit is involved in helping us out of the very words that we pray and come before God when we're struggling with something. If we are feeling down or a long way from God, then the best thing to do is actually to read the Bible and pray. These are simple, basic things, but um, it's a relationship. So if I want to hear God's voice in my life, I just need to open His Word and He speaks to me. If I want to convey my thoughts and struggles to him, then I need to open my mouth and speak to God in prayer. You know, it's a two-way thing. Um, And so 
that's referred to um, in Romans 8 as well in terms of the Spirit's help in prayer. You know, he'll say, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Um, this is such a huge resource, just a huge topic to keep thinking through. But mm. yeah, in basic terms, we know that God is with us because we have his Spirit. How does that help us? Well, the Spirit helps us to understand God's voice as we read Scripture, helps us to express our desires and concerns, our struggles in prayer uh, back to God. Mm. Um, much more might be said, but I think that's, that's, <laughs> that's a good a start. Neat little summary there. Um, thanks. In Luke's Gospels, jumping ahead now into the New Testament, uh, he suggests that even in the time of Christ, Jerusalem had not yet been comforted. So we've jumped forward, I don't know how many hundreds of years. Um, how it, How is that conveyed? Yeah, so um, I think Isaiah 40 is written um, yeah, in the 6th century or thereabouts. Um, BC. So this is like 600 years later. And so Isaiah 40 verse 1 is saying, comfort, comfort my people. So you wouldn't want the answer of that prayer and the offer of comfort to take 600 years to come, right? Yeah. So, um, so, and, and then, so what we've got to understand in Isaiah in particular um, is that there are various horizons of fulfillment. That is, um, God's promises are met in different ways at different points as his... Um, plan of salvation unfolds so for the generation first reading isaiah 40 most of them stuck in babylon um, their hope is to go back to the promised land so they're going to be comforted by a return to the promised land and that happened 539 bc after 70 years in captivity cyrus the persian the persians and medes take over and destroy the babylonian empire so another new empire comes into power and he says, we'll get to that a little bit later. We'll get to series. that. <laughs> That's coming. But says, go home. Uh, feel free to go home. And so amazingly, after 70 years, um, they're able to go back to the promised land. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls. We can read how that unfolds in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and so they are comforted by that amazing turnaround that God um, yeah, sends them home and that they are in his land under his rule with his presence uh, as signified by the temple being rebuilt. Um, So there's that comfort then, but there's a sense in which, well, that will never solve what is really needed. Um, The comfort ultimately is to um, rightly live under God's rule and to have him more present with us. Well, how can you be more present than him coming in flesh? So when Jesus arrives on the scene 600 years later, there are still the Jews who understood this, looking for this comfort, this consolation of Israel. Mm. Um, yes, it was great to go back to the promised land, but there was a Messiah that was awaited. There was um, to have God in flesh among them. Uh, there was this hope of something more mm. than just being you know, back on a plot of land in Palestine. And so when you get to uh, Luke's gospel, for example, um, He's saying, uh, well, the comfort of Isaiah 40 uh, that the righteous and devout Simeon was waiting for and that the prophetess Anna spoke about actually comes with the birth of this child. Uh, When they see Jesus come into the temple courts to be dedicated by his parents, they say, Mm -hmm. this is the comfort of Israel. Mm -hmm. 
And so here is the fuller fulfillment. It's not that it wasn't fulfilled in the generation in Babylon, but there was another horizon yet to come with the coming of Christ. And we might say today there's another horizon yet, and that is that we can be in Christ's presence, nearer presence permanently in heaven mm. one day. And so it looks forward to the even greater comfort uh, that we look forward to in eternal life. Mm. Well, my final question for you today uh, not all the people received the good news that was declared in Isaiah's day. Uh, but how, I guess, is this the same with the gospel in Christ's day? Yeah, I think we'll see in the weeks to come, and I won't steal that thunder, that there's a real battle here for Israel. That's why we called the title of this series, In God We Trust? Question mark. Like, in God so, We Trust? Yeah, In God We Trust, really? <laughs> um, because they, come, they will come back to the land, but they still struggle with idolatry of just trusting themselves, of... Trusting other things or people other than God, um, and and so there were those that heard the comfort of returning and they were, and were excited that God was doing a new thing, and there were others that didn't really turn back to God, even though they physically got to go back to the land or their descendants did. Um, and the same is true when Jesus comes along, like um, verse nine of Isaiah forty. This is good news that they're going to return, and it's to be announced to all the land, the exiles in Babylon, all the towns in Judah as well. Uh, we've got good news. Same phrase, good news. Um, you know, the euangelion, uh, the gospel, is just a phrase that means good news, and that good news can be you know, news of a military victory or anything throughout the Bible. But ultimately, we understand the New Testament that the good news centers on you know this message of salvation in Jesus. So we've got a better good news than the Babylonian you know, captivity ending. Um, we've got a saviour that's come that once and for all deals with sin. So you'd think people would be really excited about hearing that news. But like Isaiah's day, not everyone wants to hear the good news. They're not excited about acknowledging that they're a sinner in need of rescue and that Jesus is the only one way um, for their sin to be dealt with and for there to be hope beyond this life. They want to find their salvation in something they do or some other belief. Um, and so we see the same today as Isaiah found in his day. We share the good news about Jesus. Not everyone's excited to hear this news. Yeah. Some some receive it with joy and repentance and faith. Others are just, no, I'm not interested. Yeah. Or um, And so and, and we think, oh, gee, we must be not good at, you know, sharing this message. You know, yeah. there's something wrong with us. But no, the same reaction even to Christ himself when he announced mm. the good news of what he was bringing, yeah. the same problem. So you might say the tragedy, inverted commas, of Jesus' life is that so many in Jerusalem were unwilling to receive the comfort from him that he so desperately wanted to give them. Um, you know, mm. so as he arrives in Jerusalem, in Luke 13, verse 34, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to get to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, if we find it hard at times that people don't want to hear about Jesus, Jesus himself found that reaction even in his earthly ministry. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time this morning, Rod. Um, there's obviously going to be a lot for us to unpack in the coming weeks as we continue to study the book of Isaiah. I'm, I'm excited to see um, how this book unfolds. It'll be stretching for us, but I think it'll be really encouraging. <laughs> cool. See you next time. Thanks. You 
have been listening to Deeper by Wollongong Baptist Church. We'd love you to join us at any of our services this coming Sunday. For details and to hear further content, please head to our website at wollongongbaptist.org.